In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven today, as we study these three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar, I pray that we would learn and remember these facts because they are important, because your word is truth and your word is eternal. I pray, Lord, that also we can apply these facts in a way that will make a difference in our lives. I pray, Lord, that these facts will cause our hearts to be soft and pliable and useful for thy service. Enable me, Lord, as I preach today, to not be confused with all of the details historically, but I pray, Lord, that I can be clear, succinct, to the point, convincing, convicting, and compassionate. And I pray most of all, Lord, that we would see Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This verse anticipates a monarch who will rule with absolute standards, and that king is Jesus. Uh, We are currently studying the Old Testament book of Judges. Uh, The book of Judges is rough. Um, By that I mean that the narratives are spicy and they are violent. Uh, Today is one of the roughest. Now, I'm going to do my best today as I preach to be euphemistic and as much as possible to allow you to read between the lines, but please know ahead of time uh, that today's story is rough. Secondly, the book of Judges is repetitive. There's an ongoing cycle of sin and suffering and supplication and salvation and solace and sin and so forth. The template for that repetition is something that we looked at last week in chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. The book of Judges is also rhetorical, meaning that it is arranged not chronologically, but thematically and theologically. Uh, There are numbers that are symbolic. There are numbers which are rounded off. Uh, There are word plays. There are ironies all over the book. It is not your standard history textbook. And then most importantly, the book of Judges is redemptive. Uh, It is one illustration after another of God saving and rescuing undeserving people. Uh, It is a series of pictures and types of the ultimate redeemer and helper and savior, Jesus. Now today, we have 25 verses to cover, Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 31. And we are going to be looking at the first three judges listed in this book, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Othniel gets five verses, Ehud gets 17, and Shamgar gets but one. So before we study how God works through these first three judges, I'd like to back up and define the word judge. In the book of Judges, sense of the word, what is a judge? Well, interestingly, in the book of Judges, the judges are never once called judges. Hmm. George M. Schwab, who's written a commentary on this book, says this, and I quote, 
While judges are said to judge Israel using the finite verb, they are not actually called judges. They are called saviors. Each judge is actually a savior or a deliverer who saves God's people from the consequences of their idolatry and sin. Let's just pause in the middle of his quote right here and look very briefly at chapter 3, verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel. And then over in chapter 3, verse 15, once again, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud. Continuing with Mr. Schwab's quote. But it, what it does mean, wait, but what does it mean that these saviors judged Israel? They certainly were not judiciaries who decided legal matters. No, they were magistrates and warriors. They led in battle as a king would, end quote. And did you know that? So when you're thinking about the judges, do not think Wapner or Judy or Clarence Thomas, but rather what you should think is William Wallace or Batman or Dirty Harry or Buford Pusser or Shaft. Uh, with the only difference being that some of those movie characters are actually morally more superior than many of the judges in the Bible. You see, what happens here is that God uses pagan nations in order to discipline his people, and then God uses judges to liberate his children from those pagans through a variety of wars and battles. Our outline today is very predictable. Point number one, Othniel. Point number two, Ehud. Point number three, Shamgar. Let's go with point number one. Othniel, verses seven through 11. Listen as I read. And when the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, uh, they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushim, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushim, Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years, and then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. A couple of things to note here. First of all, the most remarkable thing about Othniel is that there is absolutely nothing remarkable about Othniel. His story is a straightforward copy-and-paste rotation of the cycle of the judges. There are no spicy nor memorable details. In fact, other than a few names, there are no details at all. Nevertheless, there is still profound spiritual truth to be learned from Othniel's life. Please note these four items. First of all, his test, his test. 
Please remember that we first ran into Othniel back in the book of Joshua, chapter 15, and then in an identical uh, account of that same story, we read in Judges, chapter 1, verses 15, a story of Othniel being successful in battle. Caleb, you remember Caleb, he was one of the two spies that brought back a good report to Moses and the children of Israel, and he was promised that he would go into the promised land, and he went into the promised land, and as he was there, he promised his daughter Aksa in marriage to anybody who would capture and defeat Kiriath Sefer. It says in Judges chapter 1, verse 13, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother, younger, younger brother, captured it, and he, that is Caleb, gave him, that is Othniel, Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. What does this remind you of? Well, it reminds me of the fact that King David loved Saul's daughter, Michael, and because David killed 200 Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 18, he was given Saul's daughter as a wife. Now, rabbis have speculated as to why Caleb was so eager to marry off his daughter, Aksa. Uh, One theory from one rabbi is this, is that Caleb was angry with her uh, because she took his chariot one day and got into a fender bender, thus causing an accident. An accident. But that's just speculation. The facts are that Othniel was tested and proven to be a capable warrior and leader and deliverer before, keyword being before, before he was appointed as a judge to deliver Israel. Likewise, I believe that it is prudent and scriptural to test and to prove leaders in the local church before they are appointed. For example, with respect to deacons, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, um, let, let them also be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. I know of many pastors in many places who are friends of mine and the biggest problem that they have in their ministry is that men have been appointed to be officers of the church who are not qualified. Why were they appointed? They were appointed because they were not first tested. Othniel was tested and he passed the test. And number two, notice also his trouble, his trouble. His trouble came both from his friends and from his enemies. His trouble came from his own people in that they became idolatrous. In chapter 3, verse 7, they forgot God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. You remember from last week that Baal was the fertility god and his girlfriend was Asherah. Um, they would procreate, and as they would procreate, blessings would come upon those that worshipped them. And what was the worship of Baal? Well, it was to fornicate and thus motivate Baal to connect with his lady friend. It was, first of all, debaucherous, and secondly, it was ridiculous. And it is amazing that Israel forgot God, and they were involved in this kind of Baal worship. And so what has happened here with Othniel is that domestically he was dealing with the covenant people of God who were sinfully idolatrous. But his trouble continues 
in that God raised up a bad guy to discipline Israel. And Judges 3 calls him Cushion Rishathaim, which was not his birth name. Remember, I've told you several times that the book of Judges is rhetorical and that it is written with a rhetorical style. Cushim Rishathaim was his nickname. It is a play on words that Israel would use to refer to him. Cushim Rishathaim of Mesopotamia literally means cushion of double wickedness who comes from Mesopotamia. And in Hebrew, Mesopotamia is the land between the two rivers, the land between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And prophetically, it was a land of double trouble. It is the place from whence came the two biggest problems that Israel ever had. First of all, the Assyrians came from that region, and in 722 BC, they wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. That is also the region from whence came the Babylonians, who destroyed Judah in 586 BC. So it is prophetic, a land of double trouble, But add to that the irony that Cush was the father of Nimrod, Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, and Nimrod was the one who established the Babylonian civilization. All of this, his name, points symbolically to the point that this guy is one bad dude, king double trouble from the land of double rivers. Othniel lived in a day of spiritual apostasy, and he lived in a day of outward oppression, which we are told lasted for eight years. Likewise, when Christ came in the fullness of time, Israel was spiritually dead. Uh, They were apostate. They were following the laws of Judaism with no heart toward God at all. And at the same time, The people were not only spiritually dead, but they were literally enslaved to Rome. And so Christ comes in the context of a spiritually dead people who are politically oppressed, and that is the same situation that Othniel finds himself in. That is Othniel's trouble. Uh, But notice that he was victorious, which brings us to our third observation about him, and that is his triumph. In verse 10, it says that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. That is, he defeated King Double Trouble. Now, remember the definition of a judge. A judge is a savior. A judge is a deliverer. And he prevailed over this king, Cushim Rishathaim. How did he do it? It is important to note this. He did it through the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, allow me to take a few minutes to say a word about pneumatology, which is the study of or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. You know that there is one God and that this one God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is seen throughout the Bible from beginning to end. However, the ministry of the Spirit is different based upon the era in which he is working. And in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would temporarily come upon an individual for the purpose of equipping them to do an unusual act in order to rescue the people of God. We see it many times in the book of Judges. For example, Samson and other judges. We see it in 1 Samuel. It happens with Saul. It happens with David. 
Now, this work of the Spirit, him coming upon people temporarily for an unusual act of strength, is not to be confused with the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit, which began on the day of Pentecost, which is known as the filling of the Spirit or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus makes a distinction between Old Covenant Spirit, uh, Holy Spirit work and New Covenant Spirit, Holy Spirit work in John 14, 17. Uh, Jesus says in the Upper Room Discourse, He, that is the Spirit of Truth, dwells with you and will be in you. Well, when did the will be happen? That happened on the day of Pentecost. Uh, the indwelling presence and power and gifting and ministry of the Holy Spirit came upon every New Covenant believer in on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, after the ascension. And that is different than the temporary power of the Spirit which came upon military leaders in Judges and 1 Samuel, uh, judges such as Othniel. Nevertheless, he is the same Holy Spirit in both cases. And Othniel did not accomplish deliverance for Israel due to the fact that he was a strong man in and of himself. It was through the power of the Spirit. And likewise, we ourselves can accomplish no lasting good for the kingdom of God apart from the work of the same Holy Spirit. Our triumph is the work of the Holy Spirit. The fourth thing that I want you to notice about Othniel is his tribe. This is the most important thing you need to note about him. And that is that he was from the tribe of Judah. That is excessively significant. He is the first judge listed, and that is also significant. You see, whenever you see a list in the Bible, usually the first item on that list is the most important list. And so, for example, when Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, what does he say? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Later he says in 1 Corinthians, but the greatest of these is love. The first item is the important one, most important one. Also, remember that there are many listings of the disciples in the Bible, and in every listing, Simon Peter is the first one listed. Why? He was the most important one. Well, twice in the book of Judges, Israel goes to God and, and asks God, which tribe will be the one who will go first up into battle for us, and both times God says, Judah is going to lead the way. You see, Othniel is a picture of a good and successful king. He is not a king, but he is a picture of a king, and he is from the tribe of kings, that is the tribe of Judah. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, before Jacob dies, he puts blessings upon all of his sons, which are going to carry out through their generations. And he says that the scepter, that is the ruling scepter, shall not depart from Judah. This is the tribe of kings. Jacob's prophecy that the royal line of kings will come through the tribe of Judah. And Othniel, as I have said, is not a king because there was no king in Israel in those days. But the person and work of Othniel prefigures a king a king from the tribe of Judah. And that king would come a little bit later, a little boy who would be born in Bethlehem. And he would be the greatest king of all of Israel's king. 
and his name was David. And then God would come to David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he would promise him that from him would come a king that would rule forever, the forever king, a king in David's line, King David's greater son, Jesus, who would also be born in the tribe of Judah in the city of Bethlehem a thousand years later. And quite simply, the importance of Othniel is that he is a picture of Christ. And Jesus is the one who subdued God's enemies through the power of the Holy Spirit and purchased our deliverance through his death on the cross and his resurrection. In other words, Othniel is a picture of Christ. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Do you know this conquering Christ? Othniel is a picture of Christ. Do you know him? Now, this is Othniel. Few details in his story. We move on to point number two, which is Ehud. And there are many details. In fact, some would argue there are too many details. But let's get into the story of Ehud. I tell you each week that Judges is a rough book. Uh, it doesn't get much rougher than this. So please put on your seatbelts. I'm going to read the text, and I'm going to give you a running commentary of the account as it appears in the English Bible, that is the ESV. Uh, but before I do, uh, please be reminded that although this is a true account, this actually happened, it was put together with a rhetorical style. And there are some key elements that the Hebrew reader would pick up on which we do not see in English. For example, much of the language in this story matches with the Old Testament sacrificial um, system and the slaughtering of an animal. And the Hebrew reader would pick up on that immediately. Furthermore, what you need to know about this story that I am about to read is that it is a comedy now, it may not be your style of humor. It's mine, but it may not be yours. And it is intended to both be funny and to make fun of this Moabite king, Eglon. You see, when the Israelites would read this account for the first time, they would be roaring at the absurdity of this drama and they would be rejoicing that God had given deliverance from Moab. But I just want you to know, this is just a universal truth. I don't know that it's going to help your sanctification, but bathroom humor is, is, is transcendent of all cultures, and we are about to read a story of bathroom humor. It is intended to be funny. So the stage is the usual cycle of the judges where Israel sins and then God punishes them and then they cry out for a deliverer and then God raises up a deliverer. Well, that deliverer is Ehud. Here is his story. I make no apologies. This is the word of the Lord. Here we go. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I think it's interesting to note here that Eglon is not defined as evil, but the children of Israel are. 
Something interesting uh, about this man, uh, Eglon, is that his name, and we will get to this later, uh, is feminine or effeminate, and he is said to be a bull or a little calf. He is an effeminate little calf. That's what his name means. He is the king of Moab. Uh, Moab is about 40 miles east of the River Jordan. Uh, remember that the Moabites are related to Israel. They are descendants of Lot. You remember Lot is the nephew of Abraham. Uh, Lot uh, escapes Sodom. Uh, he goes up into the hill country. His wife is turned into a pillar of salt. His two daughters uh, seduce him. Well, from the seduction of one of um, those encounters comes this little baby Moab. And um, also notice, please, that there are some that are helping this man Eglon. Uh, notice it says in verse 13 that he gathered to himself the Ammonites. That's another incestuous son of Lot, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, who are also related to the Israelites in that they are descendants of Esau, and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. What is the city of Palms? It is Jericho. Remember that Jericho is just on the other side of the Jordan River, and it was destroyed by Joshua. Uh, it doesn't mean that they were actually living in Jericho, because it would have been destroyed at that time. However, it is the city of Palms. It is a cooler place. It is a nice region for a vacation home. And there would have been plenty of building material from the rubble that was in the city of Jericho. Eglon sets up a vacation home there near Jericho in the city of Palms. And interestingly, that is in the region of Benjamin. Notice what happens as we read on in verse 14. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Now, they had to serve the king of double trouble for eight years. God added a decade onto their oppression here under this king Moab. Verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, and remember that, 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 this city of Jericho is in the region of Benjamin, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. When it says that he is a left-handed man, um, in Hebrew, it does not say that he is a left-handed man. All it says is that he was impaired on his right side. So the implication is that he was left-handed because his right hand was impaired. Or it could mean, and there are other places in the New Testament, for example, in First Chronicles and later in the book of Judges, meaning that he was ambidextrous, that he could use either hand. Uh, but in any case, probably the best reading is that he had some sort of a deformity on his right side. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, and he is appointed to take tribute to King Eglon, to bring a present to him. Probably this included some sort of food items. Um, we're not sure what it is, but, but we know that it was significant enough that multiple people were needed in order to carry this gift from Israel 
to King Moab or King King Eglon, the king of Moab, who was stationed in Jericho. Verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. A couple of things here. Uh, the word for sword right there is the word flame, and that is the only place that it's used in the Bible. Double-edged means sharpened on both sides, meaning it is a very deadly weapon. And it says that it is a cubit in length. There are a couple different definitions of cubit. One is the 18-inch cubit. There was a shorter cubit that was also uh, 14 inches. But what he does is he secures it to the inside of his right thigh, seeing as how he is left-handed, so that he can reach for it to use it if he needs to. Maybe if when he was going through security, they would pat him down, they would always pat down the left thigh because people would reach across for a sword. You didn't, you didn't reach for a sword on your same side. You reached across for it, but probably because he had just brought tribute and probably because maybe he had some sort of a deformity on his right side. Maybe they didn't pat him down at all, but nonetheless, he is taking this risk. He has the sword on him. He brings this tribute to King Ahab or to King Eglon. Verse 17, and he presented the tribute, that's the gift from Israel to the king, to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. We don't know if he had a thyroid problem. We don't know if he was gluttonous. We don't know if it was just bad genetics. We're not really sure. All we know is that he is extra large. We don't know if it is to show his gluttony and his excess. We don't know at all. All we know is that he is big. He is really big. Verse 18. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So they bring the gift to Eglon, and then he has some people with him who have carried the gift along with him. And he says, you guys can go. I got this. I will take it from here. But he himself, verse 19, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, that's the king. The king commanded silence and all his attendants went out from his presence. So get the picture. He brings the tribute he sends away his messengers. He himself pretends to leave. He goes all the way out as though he is leaving the territory, gets to the idols, does a U-turn, comes back into Eglon and says, oh, either I forgot to tell you something or I just got a word. I have a secret message for you. Eglon sees this and he dismisses everyone so that the two of them are Alone. The two of them are alone. Verse 20. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God, not Yahweh, not the covenant-keeping God, but just God, Elohim, which could be any God. I have a message from God for you. And of course, what 
uh, Ehud means here is, is the God of the Bible. But I have a message from God for you. And he, that is Eglon, arose from his seat or his throne. We will come back to that in just a moment. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword or the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt or the handle, we're in verse 22, the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. And Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Let me explain what's going on here. Ehud gets the king alone in a private place. He tells him that there is a message from God. The two of them come close together. He reaches with his left hand onto his right thigh, takes the dagger, puts it into the king. It's got to be at least 14 inches, and this guy's belly is so big. I don't feel so bad about myself. It's so big that the entire dagger goes in, and the his body envelops it. He dies, and the, 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 the dung comes out. So what is being said here, you cannot really pick up too well in English. So let me show you this diagram and show what is sort of happening here with this. The upper chamber has a closet, which is a bathroom. It's the place where the king would go for solace and to keep cool. They would go to the upper chamber. This is Ehud. He comes in. He's in a private meeting with the king. He says, I have a message for you. He goes over, he stabs him, he kills him. In the middle of the room, in this chamber within the upper room, would be basically a toilet, would be a hole, which would go down into a septic tank. The only way for him to have escaped would be for him to commit the murder, lock the door, and then exit down through the toilet, out the door, and escape. That is what happens here. Locks the door, and King Eglon is dead on the floor. Okay. It gets worse. (laughs) Verses 24 and 25. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought... Surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. You ever had someone use your bathroom? It's like, are they ever going to come out? What are they? What? Hello? You're going to be in there all day? And, and so they are embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. What did Ehud do? Well, Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. 
When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And when the people went out, uh, went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. In other words, he gets there, he blows the horn and says, the king of Moab is dead. Now get behind me. Now is the time to attack. Verse 28, and he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they, that is the people of Israel, went down after him. They followed him and seized the fords or the little inlets of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. What did they do? They cut off the, the, the helpers that would come to the Moabites. They cut off the Moabites themselves. They cut off the Ammonites. They cut off the Amalekites. There was nobody now to help the Moabites, and they were isolated in the land of Israel because he cut off the supply chain. He cut off the transportation route from the east to the west. And what did they do? Verse 29, and they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, again, a number which is large and rounded off and rhetorical, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So you have a man that is not strong, a man that is not able-bodied, and he escapes, but you have all of the Moabite soldiers who are able-bodied and they do not escape. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. That's what you get from reading the English Bible, and every bit of it is true. But in Hebrew, it is even more graphic, like that's even possible. Remember I told you that Eglon, his name uh, translated here, means effeminate baby calf or cow. Implied in this name is that this obese king was a homosexual. And I think that that makes sense. Hear my argument. Why in the world did this king ask for privacy to be alone with Ehud? I mean, when Ehud comes in and says, I have a message from God, can't you just say, all right, in the presence of my bodyguards, go ahead and tell me what the Lord has to say. Why does Ehud insist that these two men be alone with the absence of bodyguards, being in a private spot with another man who is a stranger alone in an upper chamber on all levels is just weird. Furthermore, when it is just the two men alone in the upper room, why does Ehud ask him saying, I have a message from God, and why does Eglon get up and go over and walk close to Ehud. I mean, if Mike Chang and I are the only two people in a room and we're having a conversation, I'm going to speak, as I'm speaking right now, at about this distance, I'm not going to walk up and say, want to go to lunch? No, you don't, you don't, you don't get close in proximity to someone unless there is a need to get close in proximity to someone. There's no reason that they needed to be physically close enough for one man to stab another in a private room. Close talkers. This is the doc this is this is this is why there should not be close talkers. And here's another one. Do you not think that Eglon would have had enough time to scream and yell and resist as Ehud was hiking up his skirt? reaching under his garment with his good hand. 
Now, I don't want to get too graphic here, but, but I think that this was a brilliant plan on the part of Ehud who pretended to be Eglon's male lover. You take his effeminate name, the fact that he requested privacy, their close proximity to one another, and the ability which Ehud had to reach under his skirt without any kind of resistance at all and pull out a 14-inch dagger without any protest. Now, although Ehud was deceptive, technically he was right. There was a message from God for Eglon. And it was this. It's time for you to stop oppressing my people. Let's just say for the sake of argument that my interpretation of Eglon's effeminate tendencies and deviant behavior is incorrect. Let's just say I'm wrong about that altogether. Still, what you have here is not only the defeat of Moab, but more more importantly, you have the humiliation of Moab. Their monarch has a 14-inch sword embedded in his fat belly. He is lying dead in his royal palace in a pile of his own waste. And it all says humiliation. Uh, When you read about King Double Trouble from the land of the Double Rivers, all it says about him is that he got beat. No details whatsoever. But Moab, on the other hand, is both defeated and graphically humiliated. I think that it is human nature to see the bad guy lose. But not only to see the bad guy lose, but to see the bad guy go out in a cloud of ignominious shame. Dirty Harry, Shaft, Buford Pusser. And what makes Moab so deplorable is that they were people who had previously humiliated the Israelites. I'll get to that in just a moment. But what happens here? is that they got defeated, they got punished, and they got humiliated. Now, as a preacher, I'll be honest with you, this is not an easy passage to draw application points from. I've come up with seven, take them or leave them. Number one, beware of strangers bearing gifts. Number two, make sure that your metal detector is working properly. Number three, diet and exercise so that your coroner can easily find the murder weapon. Number four, there is no need for close talking with someone who is not your spouse. Number five, most unusual people tend to be left-handed. Number six, don't be a homosexual. It's just wrong. And number seven, all is fair in love and war. Now, I say these with a measure of tongue-in-cheek, although there may be some truth there. But, but all that to say, it's not easily applicable. But let's get in our gospel helicopter and let's lift off and let's look at the big picture. When the children of Israel were passing through from Egypt to the Promised Land, there was a king by the name of Balak, who was a Moabite king, and he hired a man by the name of Balaam, We read this in Numbers 22 through 25. He hired Balaam to curse Israel. And Balaam could not curse Israel because God wouldn't allow him to do it. But Balaam did do this. 
He went to King Balak and he said, I can't curse Israel, but I will teach you how to entice Israel to bring a curse upon themselves. Here's all you have to do. Send your women down into their camp to seduce the Israelite men. And when they are overcome with that temptation, then the covenant curses of God will kick in and God will inflict pain upon his own people because they have brought a curse upon themselves. And it worked. You know how many Israelites were killed as a result of this deception? 24,000. 24,000 Israelites died as a result of this plan. And so Moab was permanently put on the blacklist of Israel forever. And when the book of Judges is read for the first time, the Jews reading it, who knew Hebrew, they would hoot, they would holler at this bizarre comedy, and they would rejoice at the humiliation and the defeat of Eglon and the Moabites. Rejoicing, thinking back to how they themselves were humiliated. It's a very colorful, memorable story. And I think the point of it is clear. And here is the big point. And that is that God loves his people. And he will avenge his people. And if you harm his people, he will take vengeance on you. If you harm his people, he will take vengeance on you. Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Did Israel deserve to be disciplined? Absolutely. But at the same time, God took vengeance upon those who oppressed his people. Now here are two actual application points. Number one, be kind to the people of God because they are the apple of his eye. Don't mess with them. Roy Valley told me that, told me this years ago, he said that the Valley brothers, and there were a bunch of them, that they would always fight amongst one another. But if anybody ever tried to fight one of the Valley brothers, they had the whole family against them. Do not mess with God's people. He takes it seriously. And our fellow Christians are God's people. And I will grant you that Christians can be irritating and irreverent and, and irresponsible and indulging and a word that I don't often use in a sermon, but it is true they can be idiots. Christians are people and by definition people bother us. Christians are sometimes easy to diss and to dismiss and to defame. And their irritability can lead us to have license to gossip about them and to be cold toward them. And to be honest, in an equitable world, in many cases, they have earned the disrespect that we give them with no dispute. But regardless of the facts, here is even a greater truth. And that is nobody died and made you King Eglon. And if they are saved, they are your siblings. You be kind to them because God loves them. They are loved by God. Jesus suffered in their place. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They are joined to Christ. You will be in the same heaven that they are. The bottom line is God loves them every bit as much as he loves you. So back off of gossip and malice and coldness toward fellow Christians. This is not to say that we don't discipline or correct or rebuke wandering Christians. We do and we must. But it is to say 
that when we do it, we do it with love, with a view toward restoration, and not with a view toward humiliating them or making them look small. We do it with a view toward restoring them. God will not deal favorably with you if you mistreat one of his children. You don't want to test God on this. Ask Eglon. Second application point is this. Recognize and rejoice in the mercy of God. This is a bizarre story, the one of Ehud and Eglon. But there is another Moabite story in the Bible which is even more strange. And it's the story of Ruth. You know, the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1, says when it took place. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. You know, the book of Ruth was originally part of the book of Judges. And remember, I tell you this every week, that Judges is arranged rhetorically and not chronologically. Most people believe that the story of Ruth was toward the beginning of the book of Judges chronologically. And it has to be, seeing as how the husband of Ruth, Boaz, had a mother, and that mother was Rahab, and Rahab was one who was spared in Jericho. So you've got to move the book of Ruth earlier chronologically. And the book of Ruth is more bizarre than the story of Eglon and Ehud. There's a famine in the land of Israel. In Bethlehem, there's a man by the name of Elimelech. He pushes the panic button, and he moves his family to Moab, of all places. While he's there, he dies, and his two sons die. But before those sons die, one of them marries a lady by the name of Ruth, and she returns to Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi, to Bethlehem. And through a strange series of providential events, she ends up marrying someone named Boaz. Boaz and Ruth have a baby. The baby's name is Obed. Obed grows up, becomes a father. His son's name is Jesse. Jesse grows up, has a bunch of sons, and the youngest one is named David. And therefore, this Moabite woman, Ruth, becomes the great-grandmother of David. And as such, she is a direct ancestor of Jesus Christ. She is in the line of Christ. Now, now here's the point. If I'm Jesus, I get to pick my ancestors. Nobody else in the world gets to do that. But Jesus gets to pick his ancestors. And he goes out of his way to pick a woman who is from Moab. That is bizarre. For some bizarre reason, Ruth, the lady from Moab, is selected to be a direct ancestor of Jesus. The mercy of God is unpredictable and it is unfathomable. Why would he let Ruth, after everything that Moab has done to Israel, why would he let Ruth into his family? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I deserve justice. I deserve damnation. But you know what I ended up getting? I ended up getting mercy. Eglon, the Moabite, got justice, and Ruth, the Moabitess, got mercy. So it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you're fat or whether you're skinny. It doesn't matter whether you're a straight or homosexual. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter whether you're morally upright or whether you are selfishly debaucherous. It doesn't matter whether you are a Jew or a Moabite. It doesn't matter who you are. 
The mercy of God in Christ extends to all sinners who repent and believe in Jesus. The vilest offender that truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And so as you recognize the mercy of God, you must appropriate it in your life. Jesus, I am a sinner. I am a Moabite. I am undeserving. Have mercy upon me. And all who call upon Christ will be saved. God is merciful to Moabites. God is merciful to sinners. Point number one, Othniel. Point number two, Ehud. Point number three, Shamgar. He only gets one verse. The Bible says, After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. We don't know anything about this guy. His name is not a a traditional Hebrew name. He might not have even been Jewish. He's not a trained soldier. Uh, He's probably a farmer. You see, the Philistines probably had exercised some form of gun control in that they went in and they took away all conventional weapons from Israel. And Shamgar is not deterred by the removal of the weapons, so he improvises and he uses an ox goad, which has a point at one end and sort of a, 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 a not a hoe, but sort of a, a slab at the other end in order to clear off the, the plow, one end to move the animal along, another one to clean off the plow. He uses this ox goad. This kind of, kind of looks like a spear or a javelin. He uses it to kill 600 Philistines. You can think of him as a highway patrolman. Over in Judges chapter 5, verse 6, in the song of Deborah, Lord willing, which we will look at next week, she sings about Shamgar, and she says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anoth, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and the travelers kept to the byways. In other words, the people of Israel were afraid to use the main roads because of the Philistines, that is, until Shamgar came along. They would always take the back roads because they were afraid until Shamgar comes along. What does he do? Well, we don't know if he did it all at once. We don't know if he did it in a battle. We don't know if he did it at one time. We don't know if he did it in guerrilla warfare. We are not told. All we know is that this guy comes along, and with this ox goat, he ends up killing 600 Philistines, and in so doing, he saves or rescues Israel using a very unconventional weapon. Application points concerning Shamgar. I have three of them. Number one, God uses a wide variety of ways and means to deliver his people. He is not a boring God. He's very creative. He doesn't just do things one way. Number two, please do not make excuses or write yourself a pass saying that you do not have adequate resources in order to be successful in the kingdom. You have everything you need. You might need to be creative, but don't make excuses and say, because I do not have conventional weapons, therefore I cannot be of use. When I was playing football at the University of Georgia, I got back winter break one time, and there was a young boy standing in the parking lot of our dormitory, and he was at night, and it was really cold, kicking this football, 
and the air was so cold he couldn't even get the ball above the rooftops of the cars. I mean, he was just, it was like kicking a rock around. And I, I, and he, his father was one of the coaches at Georgia. And I said, Case, I said, man, it's too cold. Don't, I mean, you're, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to, to get anything done tonight. And he was just a junior high student at the time. And he looked at me and he said, some people make excuses for themselves. I do not. Well, that young boy was John Casey who kicked 19 years in the NFL and scored 1,970 points. If you don't have a sword, find something else and use it. Don't make excuses. And number three, God uses things and people who are weak in order to accomplish great deeds. He used a man with an ox goad in order to save Israel. He used a man hanging on a cross to save me. That which is weak, that which is despised, that which is foolish in the eyes of men is often just the tool that God is looking for in order to accomplish his his promises, his purposes. I can remember one time, once again at the University of Georgia, when I myself was living a sinful lifestyle, uh, very hypocritical, religious on the outside, but inwardly and secretly living um, in sin, And I can remember walking into the lobby of a dormitory one time, and there was a young man there who was in the same ministry of me as me, Campus Crusade for Christ. This young man was getting ready to go and to witness, to share the gospel. And I I, I don't suppose it's politically correct to say that he was a geek, but but he was a geek. And 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 he was a timid young man, and um, he wasn't in any way flashy. And I said, are you going to go share the gospel? And almost with trembling in his voice, he put a little fake smile on his face and he said, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. And he walked over to some students and started to share the gospel with them. And I went back (laughs) to my dorm room and I began to weep and weep and weep. And I thought, here you are. You're so boisterous. You're so arrogant. You're so proud. You're so confident. But yet your life, it doesn't match it at all. And here's this guy who is timid and fearful and with trepidation, stepping forward to tell someone of Jesus Christ. It was that day that I was slain with an ox goad. I was slain with an unconventional method. I was slain by someone who was weak. I was slain by someone that God used to break my heart. You see, the foolish things of this world often are things which are used to confound the wise. So I'm going to take a few extra minutes this morning, and I'm going to remind you again of the weak preacher the weak preacher that would used of God to save Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon is 15 years old. He's walking through the streets of London in January of 1850, going to church, but he can't get to his church because of a snowstorm. And he walks into this primitive Methodist church, and the weather was so bad that the pastor couldn't even show up that morning. Here's how Spurgeon puts it. 
The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up in the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. And the text was, look unto me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There I was, there was, I thought, a glimpse of hope in the text for me. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or lifting your finger. It's just look. Well, a man doesn't need to go to college in order to learn how to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year in order to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Ah, said the man in broad Essex. Many of ye are looking unto yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some of you look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. And some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ, the text says. Look unto me. Then the good fellow followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend into heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. And when he had gone about that length and managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. When he looked at me under the gallery, I dare say with so very few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look miserable. And well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow and it struck right home. And he continued, you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. And you have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with this one thought like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. God took an ox goad into that primitive Methodist church in 1850 and used it to save the man who would go on to become the greatest preacher in the English language. Friends, today, God uses those things and those people which are small and weak and simple and seemingly insignificant to accomplish great things, great things for himself. Father in heaven, may we learn from Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar, but may we learn of Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we love you. Help us now, Lord, to retain these things. Use them as 
gospel cues so as to share the gospel, remember the gospel, and live the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.